And join me in the book of Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 37 as we continue this study, walking through the New Testament book of Acts little by little. Again, we're in chapter 7, verse 37. Here, no, third or fourth week now in chapter 7. We're, we're taking our time as we like to do around here. No rush. No rush. Plenty to see as we go. So Acts chapter 7, there words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, uh, or there's actually a hard copy on the seats in front of you if you'd like to follow along there as well. Acts chapter 7. Um, in his book, Live No Lies, Pastor John Mark Comer writes about the reality and the dangers of spiritual deception. And in that book, he tells the story, he retells the story of certain Cold War military tactics and how the Russians coined the term desinformatia. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Or in English, disinformation. And the idea was back in the Cold War, the KJB would intentionally weaponize lies and half-truths and propaganda. And they'd even place spies in the Western world in certain key roles of journalism or media or entertainment, sometimes with a very specific nefarious goal. But other times it was simply to uh, sow seeds of confusion in the Western world. And so false things would be printed and the idea was and to keep the Western world distracted and confused and chasing our tail, spending all kinds of energy trying to figure out what is actually true, getting worked up over things that possibly didn't even happen. And it would all distract us from the reality of what they wanted to do behind the scenes. We see a similar dynamic in our day today, not just with Russia, but we're all wondering at times about fake news or who we can trust or which news article or reporter or news outlet, whether you're left or right, we're always suspicious that somebody out there is not telling the truth, that there are partial truths or half-truths uh, parading as reality. Even Abraham Lincoln, Honest Abe himself, warned us of the dangers of the internet. When he said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. He said that, it's true. Or maybe he didn't, I don't know. You'll have to look it up afterwards. But you get the point, there's a parallel to our spiritual lives, right? Where we're constantly wondering what is true. And whose voice we can trust. And we have all these teachers and podcasters and influencers in the world. And we're wondering who's reliable who's trustworthy, not just about current events and true about politics, but about who God is and what is true about Scripture. Another layer to this is the fact that we have a spiritual enemy, Satan, who is described in John 8 by Jesus as the father of lies, and he wants to deceive us and get us believing things that aren't true and living those lies out to our own destruction. And so we have to decide which voices we will listen to as we seek not just to make sense of the world and current events and politics, but as you think about who is God and who am I and what's true about my neighbors or about those closest to me? How do I navigate relationships and build my life? 
Who will I trust? Our passage this morning is going to help us think through this. I'm going to check my mic pack real quick here with all the popping. One second. Testing, one, two, check, 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 check. All right, here we go. <clears throat> so, our passage is going to help us think through those Steve questions. Just a little context, if you haven't been with us, we're in Acts chapter 7, and what we've seen so far is Stephen, uh, this leader in the early church, he's been arrested, he's preaching the gospel, telling everybody about Jesus, but the leaders of his day there in Jerusalem are threatened and they want to get rid of him. And so there's all this trouble stirred up. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the highest court for the Jews. And there's all these charges brought against him. This guy is a blasphemer. This guy's rejected the law of Moses. This guy's a threat. He's speaking against the temple. All these really serious charges for the Jews. He's on trial for his life, basically. And what we read in chapter 7 is his defense. They're like, hey, what do you have to say for yourself, buddy? And what we read is his response, basically, where he's going to try and help the court and the council understand why he's preaching the gospel and why following Jesus makes sense for them and for the world. But the way he goes about it, as we've seen, is a little bit roundabout, where he doesn't hit it directly. Instead, he's going to retell and recap all these events from history. He's going to look back to the Old Testament and talk about guys like Abraham, and Joseph, and Moses. And his point, he's trying to help the leaders of his day see how the story that God has been telling all along actually leads to, points to, and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we go, we get kind of this like Old Testament survey, a refresher course, remembering these key figures from the Old Testament, uh, and then see how it points to Jesus. So look, look at how he continues. Still talking about Moses here in chapter 7. He says this in verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness, talking about Moses, with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. So Stephen's talking about Moses, and we saw this last week, right? He's pointing to Moses, this, uh, the clearest biggest, most influential leader truly in the Old Testament for the people of God as they thought about like who's a big deal in the Old Testament, top of the list, Moses. And so he's pointing to Moses and how really the people had rejected the leadership of Moses. We're going to talk about that in a bit and we saw that last week. That's a big part of Stephen's point. Even though Moses was the one that God raised up to lead the people, he was rejected by his own people. And so he's highlighting here the fact, first, notice that Moses was a prophet. And a prophet's job was to speak on behalf of God to the people. Right? A prophet would deliver a message from God to the people that they were to hear and listen and understand and ultimately obey. And so if you notice verse 38 of our passage, it says, This Moses, he was the one who went up to Mount Sinai and he received the living words to pass on to us. Moses is the one who was given the law and the covenant and the Ten Commandments and was to bring that to the people. And so the people were supposed to obey Moses and listen to his teaching and his leadership. 
Moses, though, pointed forward to someone who would come after him. Moses realized even that he wasn't uh, the biggest cheese of them all, that there was actually a leader, a Messiah, that would come later, a prophet like him. Look at verse 37. It mentions how Moses told the people, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So he's saying, hey, I'm the one God has raised up, but there's one who's going to come after me. And he's going to be a prophet like me, and he's going to teach the very words of God to you, and he's going to lead you in the way of life and righteousness, and your job is to listen to him. This reference comes from the Old Testament, right? So if we look back to where this originates in Deuteronomy chapter 18, I just want you to see the words there in the Old Testament. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. And here's that kicker. You must listen to him. Right, so he's going to be a prophet, and you need to listen to him and obey him and follow him. This, the same thing was said in, I know we're jumping around here a bit, but in Acts chapter 3, as Peter is preaching to the crowds there in Jerusalem, he quotes the same thing. For Moses said, this is Acts 3.22, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. So notice with me just a few things going on here in these verses. First, in these two references from Acts chapter 3 and Deuteronomy, uh, there's this clear command to listen to this prophet. Say, hey, Moses was a prophet, and Moses is the one who brought this revelation to the people, and he spoke the words that God told him to speak, and he was the clear leader that God appointed and and would use Uh, to bring redemption and salvation for his people. And now the word God will raise up another prophet like Moses who will lead the people. And you need to listen to him, he says. He will be the one who will be able to lead you into the truth. He will be the one who will really show you who God is and what God is like. He will be able to show you the will of God and what is ultimately true about who you are and about reality. So you need to listen to this prophet that is to come. The second thing I want you to notice about their claim is that they're claiming Jesus is this prophet that we've been waiting for. They're saying Jesus is the one that Moses pointed forward to. That's the point in Acts chapter 3. That's the point here with Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He's the one who's fulfilled that promise. He's the guy that Moses was talking about. He's the Messiah. He's the ultimate prophet who would reveal the heart of God and the will of God and so on. And here's again why this is so important. Because you and I all have a worldview. We have a way that we approach the world and think about reality, a way that we make decisions and commitments, things that we value or don't value. We all have uh, what some would call mental maps of reality. So here's kind of how I think the world works. Here's my assumptions about God and living the good life and who I am. And we have to make decisions how we navigate our world. The problem is that often our worldview and our mental maps of reality are built on faulty assumptions. Right? It's possible to believe lies and things that actually aren't true about the world. But then when we act on those things, thinking that they are true, they get us in a whole mess. 
if we build our lives or our worldview on, on half-truths or false assumptions about reality, it's going to get us in a big mess. For example, some of us believe, based on our experiences, we believe that I can't trust God or other people. That, that's part of our worldview and one of our convictions. I can't trust God or other people because other people, they're just going to betray me or go behind my back or break their promises or leverage somehow my, our relationship for their own good and to my detriment. And so really, I'm on my own. I got to look out for number one because no one else is going to. If we live life based on that assumption, of the world. It's going to turn us inward. It's going to make us bitter, lonely, fearful, suspicious of everybody, unable really to have healthy relationships or community. So if we believe a faulty assumption about reality, I can't trust God or other people ever, it's going to lead to uh, our life being uh, hindered, you see? Or this, if we believe that anyone actually knew me, here's a lie that we sometimes believe, if anyone actually knew me, the real me, they would reject me. If people really knew who I was and what I thought or where I've been or the things I've done, if people really knew, there's no way they'd want to be friends with me. If we believe that assumption about reality, then we're going to hide. And we're not going to let our true selves be seen. And we're not going to be humble and honest to admit mistakes or share what we really think because we're afraid that other people are going to reject us. And so our world is going to become pretty small and pretty fear-based. Or this one, we believe God just wants me to be happy. Like God's ultimate goal his biggest, deepest desire in life is for me to be happy. And so I'm free to pursue my happiness, however that looks. His commands are really more like suggestions. And really, I know better than God. He wants me to be happy, and I know what happiness looks like. So I'm just going to go and do whatever I want to do. If we believe that assumption about reality, it's going to get us in a whole mess of trouble in life. Point being, we have a worldview. We have mental maps, and those mental maps can be off. And it's really hard for us to, to discern what is true sometimes and filter all the messages and voices and noise in the world today to determine how are we going to make decisions. Because there's so many, there's, guys, there's just so many messages, beliefs, opinions that we consume every day and every week. Really, the... The supply of opinions has far exceeded the demand, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, recent data has shown that the average American is exposed to between four and 10,000 advertisements per day. I don't know how they get those numbers. Sounds a little high to me, but whatever. Even if it's like half of that. Thousands of advertisements are sent your way, and you're consuming every day. The, the same studies show that that's nearly double the number of advertisements that the average person saw in 2007. Just 2007. And that's nearly f or over five times as many ads as the average person saw in the 1970s. So in, in about a generation's time, we've seen the number of messages and advertisements being sent our way 
uh, multiply by over five times. So seriously, thousands of images and quotes and ideas that we, us weary souls that we are, have to process and try and figure out what to do with every day. Not only advertisements you have to worry about, but then think about uh, all the things that media, you know, or your neighbor down the street, your friends with their opinions and their posts and all the things that they're sharing we're bombarded with and overwhelmed with messages to process. And we have to somehow sort through all of that in our minds and in our hearts and determine what is actually true. So I want you to notice how freeing and clear and helpful this truth is from Scripture. Moses is saying, hey, there's there's a prophet who will come after me, and he's the one you're to listen to. So if you want to really simplify your life, say, instead of listening to the thousands of voices out in the world, I'm going to make the decision to listen to the voice of Jesus. He's the one with the very word of God. He is the perfect revelation of who God is. He is the one that I can trust. He's the most reliable guide for my life. It's not my buddy down the street with a podcast, okay? He's not the most reliable guide, and Joe Rogan is not the most reliable guide, and whatever, Joe Biden or Trump or whoever, like political, whatever, they're not the most reliable guide. The most reliable guide to life is the Lord Jesus. We're to listen to his voice and trust that he knows what's his for us. And he created us and made us and loves us and is for us, and so walking in his ways is going to be what's best for us. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. They listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is we listen to his voice and we obey. And he says, I give them eternal life. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, his heart is for us. That he would lead us to life, an abundant life that only he can provide. So we need to look at our lives and we have to ask, are we listening to the voice of Jesus? Or is there anything in our life that is out of sync and out of line with his ways? Do we believe that he's good and for us? Now, whenever we talk about Jesus as our teacher or as our rabbi or the one that we are to follow and listen to and he's going to show us the best way to live life, that's all true. But we always want to talk about the fact that Jesus is not just a rabbi. He's not just a good human teacher, like some human sage with some great quotable wisdom, and you know, throw that, sprinkle that into your life, and it'll go better for you. He's actually much more than that, right? He is all of that, but he's also our savior. He's also our rescuer, the one who laid down his life for us on the cross. When he, in John 10, is using this image of sheep and shepherd, he says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So central to who Jesus is, is the heart of the gospel, his death for us on the cross. And just how Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt, so Jesus leads us out of slavery. Not slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but our slavery to sin and death and self and the judgment we find ourselves under that he leads us to a new life. Maybe you saw, uh, hopefully you saw, when you were walking up to church that we've been painting the building. If you didn't notice that, <laughs> let's talk. But you saw there's some new paint on the building. Um, 
and it, it's coming together beautifully. I love it. But one of the things maybe you notice is that the doors were painted red. And part of that is, I mean, it's stylistically, aesthetically, it looks nice. Uh, but, but also there's some history there. Painting the doors of the church red is an old Christian tradition that goes back centuries. And the reason churches would paint their doors red is that it would uh, resemble or remind people of the gospel, that it's through the blood of Jesus that we enter the church. It's through the perfect and finished work of Christ that we can come into the presence of God and be called work his own people. And so it's not through our own work or effort or moral performance. We don't show up to church each week with our uh, report card or like, here, I'm going to show my homework list and God, here's all the things I did for you this week. Can I come in? No, we come in and it's through the finished work of Christ that we're invited and washed and forgiven and renewed and called the people of God. We come in from, from the weary world outside where we're recovering sinners. And so much of life maybe feels out of control or out of hand or we feel like a mess or we're heavy hearted uh, and feeling caught up in shame for our sin or we're wounded or just tired and we look to those red doors and we see that it's through the blood of Christ we can come into the family of God and sit at his feet. And so I love just that right out on front of our building is this gospel reminder. The first thing you see when you're walking up is those red doors pointing you to the good news of Jesus, our Savior. So, Jesus is our teacher. He's our Savior. Notice how, how Stephen continues, though. There's more here. He's talking about Moses and how the people were supposed to listen to him. Have done. Listen to Moses, he was saying, and listen to the one who will come after him. But the people have done neither. Right, look at verse 39. But our ancestors, here it is, refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Remember, they're like, we want to go back because there was onions and leeks and good food back there. and We're sick of this bread. What did you take us out here for, Moses? Their hearts turned back. And then verse 40, they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow, Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. God gave them over. If you read Romans 1, you'll see that line repeated. There are times where God says, okay, have what you want. And it leads to our destruction, but he says, okay. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? Verse 43, you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Okay, hang with me. A lot going on here in this text. Uh, but basically, Stephen is saying how Moses was appointed to be the rescuer and leader of the people, but no thing rejected. All right, verse 39, our ancestors refused to obey him. They said, thanks, but no thanks, Moses, and their hearts turned away from God. Not only did they reject Moses, but they rejected the God that Moses served, and it points them to the golden calf incident. Remember this famous uh, scene from Israel's history where so soon after they're saved and liberated, 
they turn to idol worship. And their hearts are calloused. And look at it again in verse 40. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, I love that line. As for this, this fellow, this Moses fellow over here, we don't know what happened to him. We're getting impatient. He's up on the mountain, you know, getting the law of God to bring down to us. But we're impatient. And so off we go with some idols. We don't know what has happened to him. And that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. And here's, they brought sacrifices to it and reveled in, reveled in what their own hands had made. Rather than worshiping the creator of all things, they worship and revel in things that their own hands had made, false gods and idols. Here's a big idea Stephen's been driving home for weeks now. The main point, they rejected a few weeks of rescue. Right, we heard this last week. We heard this a few weeks ago. Joseph was rejected, but he was the one God would raise up to save them all. And Moses was rejected, but he was the one that God would raise up and use to save them all. And so Jesus, in the first century, was rejected, but he was the one that God sent to save us all. Don't reject the rescuer. Third week in a row. That's a million idea. <laughs> Don't reject the rescuer. Just again, copy and pasted the slide. Just, you know, just repetition. The Bible's highlighter. We need to see it over and over again. That's, don't reject the rescuer. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the Savior. He's the one who came to lead us and teach us and to ultimately lay down his life for us. Trust him. That's what Stephen's trying to say. Now, but this week, I, I, I wanted to give just a little more uh, time and, and unpacking this. And not just say, hey, here's the warning, don't reject the rescuer. But let's talk, can we talk for a minute about why we tend to reject the rescuer? What's going on in our hearts that makes it difficult to trust in Jesus? There's, there's some of that seen in this text. And so I don't want to just leave it here. I want to say, let's think through this a little bit together. First of all, let's realize it's a heart issue. Okay, look at verse 39. It says, their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. That's what was going on with Moses, and that ultimately is what they're done with us when we reject Christ. It's because in our hearts, they're hard, they're callous, they're turned from the Lord, and we'd rather do things our own way than surrender and trust in Him. And so it's not just an information problem or a society problem or a structural problem. Ultimately, we all have a heart problem, a heart condition that we need to be healed and changed. And so, in our hearts, there's a number of things that are going on that lead us to reject Jesus. And the first angle to this is just the biblical concept of idolatry. Idolatry is essentially when we worship anything else other than God. We were created and designed to know God and love Him and worship Him as the most important, central thing in all of our lives and all of the universe. But often we, instead of worshiping God in that way, we put something else on the throne of our hearts or in the most important place in our lives. And you see that the passage in Acts chapter 7 goes on to describe the different gods that the people back then would worship. They worshiped the golden calf and the sun and the moon and the stars. Many people in the ancient world would look to the, uh, the heavenly lights and say those are some kind of lowercase g gods out there that we are to serve. There were, there's Molech and Refin, these other deities from surrounding nations that they were led to worship. 
And in idolatry, it would be truly something, again, that the people would craft or tie, but with their own hands. There would be like a little statue or trinket or representing this God. But they would literally just make it with their own hands. And sometimes, sometimes God in the Old Testament mocks that. He's like, you think like this cute little statue is like a real God? You'd rather worship that than the living God of heaven who created all things. But that's what they would do. And it's totally backwards. Because, again, rather than create or worshiping the creator, they're worshiping something that they themselves made with their own hands that can't save them or can't rescue them at all. But an idol, then, was a false god that would replace the true god. And we would actually worship and serve and put our trust and hope in the false god rather than the true god. And so they would look to this golden calf to somehow lead them and deliver them, or look to the surrounding gods like Moloch to lead them and deliver them. And throughout the world today, there's still idol worship happening. Sometimes it's in other cultures, false religions, false gods are honored with statues and worship. But often in the West, idolatry is much more subtle and more difficult to see. See, Tim Keller's put it this way. He said that idolatry happens when we take good things and make them ultimate things. So you say, I don't worship idols. I've never bowed down to a little trinket statue that I made out of wood or gold. True, you probably haven't. But you've taken a good thing in your life that God gave you to enjoy and you've made it an ultimate thing. It's become something in your life that you have to have. And it's actually more important to you than God himself. Let me give you an example. Rather than trusting in God, maybe we'll worship the idol of control. And we'll say, control is what I have to have in order to be okay. And so I'll be okay if and when I get all the ducks of my life in a row. And I'll be okay, I'll finally be able to rest when I'm managing every situation and every interaction, and I'm managing my perception and the outcomes of situations perfectly. If I can do that and have complete control, then I'll be okay. And so if God asks us to do things or live in such a way where we surrender control, sometimes we're not willing because the idol of control is more important to us than the voice of God. Or rather than trusting in God, maybe we'll worship the idol of independence. And so we'll say, I'll be okay as long as I keep my options open. And I don't get too committed to anyone or anything. And I stay free of most binding and so obligations and responsibilities. I have the idol of control. And so if the Lord Jesus calls me to surrender, the idol of independence. And so if the Lord Jesus calls me to surrender some of my independence, to be committed to a person or to be committed to a local church or to be committed to a certain cause, I say, I'd rather not because it's more important to me to have my independence than it is to worship Jesus. That's an idol. For some of us, rather than trusting God, we'll worship the idol of materialism. We say, I'll be okay as long as I have financial stability and I can buy the clothes I want to buy and I can go on the vacations I like to go on and I can buy the food I like to eat and I can have the toys I like and a certain standard of life. As long as my standard of life is up here, I'm going to be okay. But if the Lord would come and call me to generosity, 
greater generosity, let's say, or to greater sacrifice, or to surrender some of our stuff or way of living for the cause of the gospel or something he's inviting us to. Then we say, no thanks, Jesus, because my stuff is more important to me than you. Do you see? Or rather than trusting God, we'll worship the idol of relationships. And we put that on the pedestal of our lives, on the front of our heart, and say, I just, in order to be okay, I need that person. I need to find that spouse or that boyfriend or girlfriend that, that fulfills me. Or i got to have that family with the kids and the fence and the house and all the things. And that's what I need to be okay. And if I don't have that, I'm not okay. And so my hope and my well-being and my joy is placed ultimately in that thing other than God. Do you see? It's idolatry in the modern day. Something that we have to have to be okay that's more important to us than God. We could go on. Um, but you get the idea. Should we? <laughs> we should. You get the idea. Good things. These, family's not a bad thing. Clothes aren't, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> Independence in its proper place is a good thing. Having control, making decisions, responsibility, ownership of your life is not a bad thing. It's when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing and say, this is more important to me than God himself. And so we say, Jesus, you're cool and all. And again, a little sunglasses emoji. You're a cool dude. I like you. Um, but real, really for my life, my security, my hope, my joy, my peace is going to be found over here. And so, yeah, I have you, but what I really need to be okay is over here. That's our battle. It's a heart issue. So, one of the reasons we talk about we reject Jesus is idolatry. Tied to this, but slightly different, is the concept of deception. We talked about this with Honest Abe earlier. Deception. We believe lies. We think that, that other things, we think that these other things are going to actually deliver on their promises, and we're deceived. And we think that our stuff, or our independence, or our uh, re relationships, or our control, or whatever is going to uh, lead to life and, and save me from myself and give me all the things that I need. But those things can't ultimately deliver on those promises. And so we're deceived. And the father of lies, Satan, our enemy, as Jesus called him, the father of lies, he wants us to believe those lies. To believe that, yeah, actually what you need is over here. And God actually is not really good. And God actually is not really for you. And God's ways aren't actually to be trusted. No, you know better. And the world knows better. So go get those things. Because listening to God's not going to get you the life you want. We've talked about this before. When you look back to the garden... Genesis chapter 3, what was going on with Adam and Eve and the serpent. The enemy attacked Eve and he came at her with lies. The, one of my favorite quotes, the Dallas Willard quote, says, when Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick but with an idea. Often, and so spiritual warfare often in our day, it's not about like you crashing your car or the enemy, you know, whispering things, or excuse me, uh, attacking your physical body and making you sick, although sometimes that happens. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But it's saying more often in the Western world, spiritual warfare is going to be the enemy lying to you, coming at you with ideas. God's not really good. His command, he doesn't know, when he, when he wrote this whole deal, he didn't know what he was talking about. 
I mean, times have changed. We know better now than to follow the ways of God. You, you see what I'm saying? And so you need to do what's best for you because God doesn't know and we're deceived and so we think we know better than Jesus. So we reject the rescuer often because of idolatry, because of deception, and lastly, distraction. Uh, Pastor John Mark Comer also said, we mentioned him earlier, but he said, what if the greatest threat to Christianity today isn't secularism, but it's distraction? What if it's not, you know, the increasingly secular, hostile world out there that we have to worry about so much? What if it's just the distraction of modern life? And how the people of God can't even hear the voice of God today because we don't even slow down long enough to listen. Right? Our pace of life, it's so fast. Our life is marked by hurry and noise. And uh, we never slow down to hear God's voice. We always have music on or a podcast on. Or we self-medicate. We try to just distract ourselves with the TV or fantasy football instead of actually hearing what God has to say. Now, I love music, and I love podcasts, and I love fantasy football, but there are times where I even realize in my own life, Lord, I've just filled my, like every space, every moment, every opportunity is filled with noise. What if I just sat quietly while I'm doing the dishes, instead of listening to a podcast, and saw what you are trying to say to me in this moment? And for, for some of us, that's just the first step we need to take. Will we just slow down enough to hear the voice of God? Sometimes the most obedient and spiritual thing we can do is, Lord, I'm just going to create some space to hear you. Because without that, I mean, following Jesus, we can't follow Jesus if we don't actually know what Jesus is saying to us. If we don't slow down enough to hear his voice. We're never really going to know what we think or feel about the call of Jesus if we never stop to think about it. I don't think she was a believer, but the poet Mary Oliver said, attention is the beginning of devotion. Maybe the first step for you just in living a life devoted to the Lord is giving him your attention. Saying, Lord, I'm going to create some space. Maybe it's just 10 minutes in the morning. Maybe it's 10 minutes when you're driving your car home from work. Maybe it's the quiet that fills the house once those kids are finally, finally in bed for the day. <laughs> Let me just create some space. Say, Lord, would you just speak? I'm going to open your word. I'm going to see what you have to say to me tonight. So that's the invitation from Acts chapter 7. There's going to be a prophet like Moses who would come or to listen to him, and his name is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. He is our savior. Jesus, you are the hero of the story. You are the one that we can listen to and trust and know that you are good and that you are for us. So we worship you as our Savior and King. We give you our hearts again this morning in your name.